Hello and welcome to the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. I'm Chris. And today I'm chatting with Charlotte Newstead. So some sparkling sisterly chat coming up. Hello, hello, hello and welcome to episode 5 of series 5 of the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. And we're recording after a spell of extremely hot weather, but today is a little bit cooler, but surely not as cool as my older sister, Charlotte. Now, Lottie, as I know her, is a classical soprano and runs a most marvellous music appreciation series online and is very game for being a repeat guest on my Jazz Junction. Lottie, hello, how are you? Hi Chris, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Oh, I'm marvellous. Thank you for being here again. What's happening in Bristol? Um, nothing terribly exciting to report. I don't think we've been enjoying the fabulous weather like everyone else, which has gone a bit gloomy today, but it's okay so far. The most exciting thing is my vegetable garden, which is not so much a garden as a series of pots, but I have fruit and veg happening in a way that I've never done before, and it's quite exciting. I had two French beans for dinner yesterday. I can't tell you the excitement. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. The um, yeah, the, the thing that we've nailed this year, we've got herbs sorted and we've got some strawberries. But yeah, the other vegetables and salad things are looking a little bit limp. So I think it just must be a, a case of not having watered enough or something. Yes, that won't help. No, any the who. So um, I've been thinking um, in recent podcasts um, about rules versus freedom and all that. So I don't know what you might fancy talking about, but I wondered if you fancied having a little chatter about, I don't know, the sort of thing about where stuff is written down musically against what's finally recorded or performed. Game? Uh, absolutely. I think it's going to be really fascinating because, of course, your approach and background to this is almost diametrically opposed to mine. Um, so it'd be interesting to see uh, where we find common ground and, and uh, where we feel completely in awe of the other approach. Yeah. I mean, I think there must be some common ground, right? In just sort of basic, you know, we share the same like of harmony, the same like of rhythm and whatnot. And I think it's just in the expression of what, of what then happens where, where difference may occur. But anyway, I mean, I was, I was playing a gig last night, right? And I was playing at this fantastic uh, bar in Islington in, in London. Uh, it's called the Plaque of Mine Lock. And it's just a trio because that's all they're allowed to put on at the minute. And we were doing uh, trad jazz and blues. Um, and it occurred to me when I was thinking about this this morning that we don't have notes in front of us. So even the tunes are our memories of, we, what, of what we think they are. Um, our arrangements develop on the fly and our interactions, I guess, are as unpredictable as the weather. But that's sort of what we expect. And I think that's what the audience expect. And then again, I was thinking when I've recorded stuff in a studio, certainly jazz, I always alter from that that has been practised or written. Do you think it's humans cannot help but tinker? Or do you think it's just jazz musicians can't help but tinker? <laughs> uh, well, I have to say what you've just described is literally my nightmare. So, you know, everyone has their recurring anxiety dream. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And for me, it's I'm on stage in front of the orchestra. The orchestra started playing. I've obviously got no music. I'm singing from memory. And the introduction starts and I have no idea what they're playing, but I've got no dots to help me. So ah. it's the most awful thing. And you can feel, you can hear the eight bars coming to an end. You think, I've got to come in, but I don't know what I'm going to come in with. Um, so, yeah, the idea right. for me of, of making something up is, is really unsettling and, and scary. And that's, you know... Is it genuinely a stress bucket? I mean... Totally. If, if that ha really? Yeah, I mean, I'm not being like... I don't know what I'm being. I'm just like, I, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, that'll be fine. I'm sure I'll come up with something. 
No, and I think the whole the whole sort of classical world. Okay, that I mean, you want to never make quite such sweeping generalizations. The whole yeah. world. There's going to be exceptions, and there are some amazing people. But for most of us in the classical world, it is a case of you pick up the written score, and then your entire job is to get inside that and understand as faithfully as possible what are the intentions of the composer and then of course there's freedoms um, and no two performances even by the same person are likely to be identical uh, never mind from one artist to another but the purpose is not to invent your own stuff the purpose is to keep going back to the score and, and make sure that you're uh, being authentic I mean, I think there's rules, right, in in all music, even if you don't think there are rules, you ultimately find out there are. And you're just much stricter about the rules because, you know, you have to be if you want to faithfully reproduce something. But, 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 I think the key thing that you said is that it's always going to differ, even the same individual. So say I'm playing Mozart's clarinet concerto, day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute, it is just going to be different every time. And is that what you think makes a, a classical audience excited that there's a sort of energy or vibe there that, that might be different from, from the night before or the brilliance of the musician may shine to an extra level. I mean, I, I'm sort of curious about what brings the whew, the edge to it. <laughs> yeah, because there is something, isn't there? I mean, a, a live performance is not the same as, as a recording. Of course it isn't. But I may be. I think, hold on, you just said something there as well, which I thought was So the jeopardy, I guess, in jazz is far less a risk because if it goes wrong, actually 99% of the people in the room won't have a clue that it's gone wrong and you've just developed something else. Whereas, of course, in classical music, the risk is far greater because if it goes belly up, everyone will know because it will grind to a shuddering halt. Yeah, absolutely. And if, it, if you're doing something well known, everybody knows exactly what that note should be or what that dynamic should be. So, you know, if... if I don't know, I'm trying to think of something that would be technically difficult. Let's say as a singer, you'd got to to sing a high note, a sustained note pianissimo. That's not easy to do. And if, if the only way you could do it was forte, the audience isn't going to be impressed because they know it should have been quiet. So, you know, there's you, yeah. you can't get away with stuff like that. So then, yeah, I mean, is it like then a, a case of you practice and you rehearse and you rehearse to lessen risk? Is it that simple? No, it can't be about that because now we're reducing music to, as you say, a risk assessment. Um, <laughs> it's true, though, in, in my sort of simple brain, but I know it's not true in, in reality, but it's, a, it's an interesting thought, right? I think the bottom line here is you're just calling me a control freak. Hmm. Um, no, I'm calling everyone in classical music a control freak. <laughs> no, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. But what I'm suddenly <laughs> genuinely appreciating for the first time is actually the appetite for risk is far higher or the the risk that's available seems to me much more precise in classical music because of course everyone knows what should be coming and that would scare the Betsy out of me in a completely different way from you and I just genuinely hadn't thought about that before yeah and, and that will still but the, you know there is still risk even if it's a new piece so nobody so nobody does know what's coming so you uh, know if you perform a, a brand new piece you premiere something there's still risk and anxiety around it and again there'd be exceptions wouldn't there according to the composer but 99% of the time I would imagine the composer is pretty keen that at the premiere you are actually trying to do what they've they've <laughs> prescribed in advance unless they have deliberately written a score that says you know ad lib at this point but 
that's not the norm. So where, yeah, the risk, I suppose, the, and the excite. You said what makes it exciting for the audience? Yeah, well, and for the musicians, and for the musicians, it's all sorts of things, isn't it? Elements of virtuosity are a key part of the classical music world, aren't they? Which I know you're going to get virtuosic musicians in jazz as well, but I guess it's not the key thing. Is that fair to say, or am I really off? I think I think much depends on on the setup, the band, the musicians. Sometimes it's all about the the sort of superstar, drummer, pianist, whatever frontline person. But I, I think there is always a natural desire once there's sort of two or three or more people on the stage to see what the interactions are, and then it's less about the virtuoso at that point. Yeah. But of course, I think the most famous names in jazz are all virtuosos by by default. Yeah. So yeah. And that only takes you so far, doesn't it? And that's the same in classical. So you, you, I mean, I went to a concert maybe a few years ago now because I was going to say last year, but it can't possibly be last year. So it's probably, <laughs> really? yeah. it's probably three or four or even five years ago, yeah. who knows. But, um, and, and it was a singer and she was really quite dazzling in her technique. Yeah. But after about 20 minutes of it, I started to get a bit bored of it. And Ooh. it was two halves concert and actually she never sort of recovered it for me. She just carried on being dazzling, but didn't mm. really have anything to say beyond look how clever I am and yeah that so that only I think that does only take you so far one of the things that makes live classical music exciting and you're talking about what's the risk and it is to do yeah. with the interaction isn't it between performers so in the case of a piano recital you can ignore that obviously because you've just got a single player but most of the time and certainly in concerts that I'm involved with there'll be at least two musicians involved so if I were giving a recital there'd be me and a pianist but or it might be me and an orchestra or me and a bunch of other soloists and a choir and an orchestra. There's all sorts of things. But so there is that interaction going on. And you do need to react to each other, don't you? Of course you do. That's the whole sort of centre of ensemble music making. Yeah. So I remember um, our mother coming back from a, a concert once and she'd been to see a clarinet player and she was sort of saying to me that was very, very exciting. But she came back and she said he was he was really good, but he was sort of cool as a cucumber. And I remember that expression, because obviously to this day, that must be 30 plus years ago. But she said because of it, it lacked um, an emotional uh, way in for the audience because it was such a good performance, but it never quite connected, certainly with her, her at least. The flip of it, and uh, I'm sure we've all been there, hopefully not professionally, but certainly as amateurs, is when you're not sufficiently prepared and that disappoints the audience in a completely different way because it's so, it's such a thrill ride and too edgy that you're actually not in control. And it reminds me of something that um, Dean Massa was telling me the other the other week, and he was on our podcast a few series ago. But he was sort of saying, you know, certainly as a jazz musician, you want to feel, you want to give the audience the feeling that you're utterly in control, like being the chauffeur of a powerful car or something. So the last thing you want is people to get in the car as passengers and think that you're not in control because they're going to be like, ah, and they won't enjoy the ride. But he said, if you're calm and you know what's going to happen, you know what it's going to do, then, you know, you can open up the engine a bit and uh, and the audience, it's the thrill is all theirs. Um, and you are just in control and confident in knowing what's happening. And I think there's a sort of balance to be struck there, right, between being so assured uh, and cool as a cucumber 
versus being so rough and ready that everyone can just go, oh my God, this is just rubbish. There's just nothing, no thought, no practice, no nothing gone into this, or they haven't done it enough. Um, because if there isn't an emotional space for you, then what's the point in listening? An emotional space for the audience, personally. Yeah, there's got to be a way in, hasn't there? Which might be vulnerability. It might be, hmm. um, a could, I don't know. In classical music, you have um, condensers, right? Where you can freestyle. Is that right? Condensers. Hmm. Yes, absolutely. It just says make it up or something. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So, um, yeah, so a cadence is uh, something that occurs usually within a solo concerto. Yeah. And... Yes, it, you you literally come to a, the orchestra will come to a halt, and then the soloist can improvise over that sort of dominant seventh. Very often, well, yeah. not over it. So that dominant seventh chord is, is sort of played, and then the the soloist can go off and do their thing, coming back to that chord, so that they can then all resolve together. Yeah, and in that improvisational section, they might only do a bar, but they could mm. do a minute or or even two minutes where they play around with thematic material that's come earlier in the movement and if that's you do you massively practice that and know what you're going to put in that sort of bar 10 bars or do you go ah so you'll come i know i'm sort of familiar enough with this let's just see what happens on the night uh, so you'd have to ask different performers yeah. um but in in my particular case there's not a huge amount of it in the repertoire that I'm singing, um, yeah. but examples where there have been, where you do get that, um, there's one in the Mozart Exaltato Jubilato, which I sing. Um, yeah, I do know what I'm going to do. I've worked it out. Yeah. Um, because that's, again, no daft bad thing, is it? Well, for the control freak in me, no. <laughs> no, no, but, no, no, but I, I mean that. I mean that in a different way. Back to the control issue, that you want to get the audience to know in control. If you suddenly start singing the... The theme tune to Mr. Ben or something. It's like, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen, and that is entirely incongruous uh, and doesn't work. Um, but another, you know, another thing Dean was saying the other day um, was, you are discovering stuff, but ultimately everything's been played. All the harmonies have been discovered. You know, it's not because you've just invented that musical phrase for the first time. It, it, you know, it's been done. If it if it sounds like it's going to be right then there's probably a reason for that. It's been done lots and lots of times before. And that then got me to thinking, well, actually, that probably wasn't the case if you were Louis Armstrong or back in the days or you were Eric Dolphy on your saxophone for the first time doing some pretty avant-garde stuff. Is there a similar story in classical music? I guess if you go back long enough, sort of Mozart, it's like, well, this sounds brilliant and will be timeless, but I don't think anyone's ever written this phrase before. I'm not sure. You see, I'm not sure I'm going to agree with Dean on this. I don't think everything has been written. Oof. I don't think anything, everything ever will be written. I mean, you can, on one level, of course, yeah, somebody's done a C major tune that went from this note to that note, but it's yeah. it's always different in its context because that's it's so multifaceted, isn't it? So it, it's yeah. speed, it's instrumentation, it's dynamics, and all of that will all add to it, and also its context within a wider piece. If it isn't, if it really is something that's been written before, then actually that's that's not interesting such as yeah. it. And I, and I don't think he was trying to be as, as reductivist as yeah. I probably make it sound. Um, but I think he was trying to say, if you're trying to play within a certain uh, style, so for example, bebop or whatnot, take confidence from the fact that you're run down a, a set of phrases where you know the notes you can choose from are that sound bop and sort of sound jazz. Someone would have played it. So you're just discovering it and hooking it together with a different phrase for the first time and blah, blah, blah. Mm. But of course, of course, it's all contextual. Yeah, okay. So and I... no one would have played it like you before. 
But ultimately, the harmonies are the harmonies. There are only 12 notes. Yeah, okay. And so, because my understanding of improvisation is that mm. actually it's not completely random, is it? You've got your little box of goodies um, and you've practised arpeggios or scales or twiddles or whatever it might be. And so they're they're coming to hand as you as you need them, but not in a pre-planned way. But when you get to play them, they are planned insofar as your fingers know how to do that. Yeah. Is that right? All the, yeah, I mean, absolutely, it's right. But it's I think this comes back to the amateur in me that I still like the idea that I haven't a clue what's going to happen. And that might just sound awful, but it can still only sound awful to others who are thinking it should sound different, right? So if I want to play random notes and not think about scales or anything, if it's pleasing to me, just because it might not make sense within a discourse of what that music should be or, or what sounds cool, it's not because I'm being so wildly creative. It's just like, well, I don't mind. I'm going to play it like this and, and see what it sounds like um, and even surprise myself. But it's that element of surprise that brings back to Dean's initial thought, that it's like, that's the bit that could probably be too much for the audience. And certainly for you, because if you're surprised, then what is it you're actually <laughs> sharing with people? And some might say it's the gift of completely random music making. And others would say, yeah, and do that at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I do um, I do have a problem with people performing at any level where yeah. they haven't actually prepared. I don't, and I'm not ruling out improvisation in that, but if you're going sure. to be improvising, you need to be somebody that's good at improvising. And so, yes, when you hear somebody flying by the seat of their pants and things not really working, I just find that disrespectful to the audience. Yeah, um, and, I, and I, I, I really agree with that. I really agree with that. But that's, again, that then comes down to the question of how much risk you're allowing yourself and, and the audience to share in, I think. So it does come down to risk. It's very simple. This is the end of the conversation. <laughs> so it's a risk assessment and I'm just a boring old what's it. <laughs> so when you're thinking about what's going on around you, right, the zeitgeist, yeah? So I play in that Pacific band, music of yesteryear, 100 years old. You know, those tunes are written then and there's something in my soul listening to enough 78 records that thinks, oh, I'd like to play a bit like that. But I'm playing on a very modern clarinet. It was made in 1992. So I'm not playing on a clarinet that, I don't know, Sidney Bechet may have been playing or I'm not playing with a band where, you know, the piano is, is slightly, the timbre of it is, is set differently. And then I was thinking, so it's not an authentic reinterpretation. It's a a modern take on something because I cannot help but what you know the instruments alone let alone the sort of people watching it and what they'd like to hear you know if I make a reference to something if a musical dalliance I might play the theme tune to EastEnders or something and that's going to connect more with people than if I was playing a little Spanish skit from 1905 even if I've heard that Spanish skit in a record from 1920s when I do it I'm going to probably make it more modern classical music there's a history and a precedent, right, for musicians playing on the instruments of a era and either recreating those instruments as faithfully as they can and playing instruments that might not really even exist anymore, like faggots and, and things like that, right? Do you think that the zeitgeist ultimately will keep things fresh because you're going to be performing Schubert or Schumann and it's 150 years plus later, so you cannot help but do it in a fresh way because you actually don't know what they were wanting and they you also don't know exactly how the orchestras would have sounded back then so whenever you do that it's going to be a different thing and I suspect it would be different in 150 years do you spend much time thinking about that yes um 
I mean, you know, way, way back in my youth, I was an early music specialist and that was where I did my masters. And so I was very much uh, interested in trying to see, you know, historical performance methods and and instruments and all, all that sort of yeah. thing. The, the way my life has gone, I've sort of drifted away from that as a, as a specialism and um, that's not where I am now. But yeah, there's mm. a huge historically informed um, movement for how to perform and there are orchestras and and instrumentalists who specialize on period instruments um so they do try to create as faithfully as they can the sound that they believe mozart would have heard or bach would have heard um yeah. and i think there's absolutely a place for that but i don't think it has to be the only way of of hearing these things i think everything is is interesting and as you say maybe because every interpretation is going to be different and affected by things like that Mm. They all in, they all inform each other and and affect. So we go back to that thing of what what's in it for the audience. It's thrilling when you hear a, an early music group playing something in a way that might be nimbler, for example, than a big yeah. modern symphony orchestra would be able to manage. That sort of thing is interesting, and you get different tunings. Obviously, so the everything is da is lower previously, and it's it's gradually gone sharper over the hundreds of years. So, so a modern concert A is higher than it used to be. Is it? Mm. Oh, I don't know this. This is interesting. Yeah. Why is that? It's just gone. It's it's gradually. So you know, people talk vaguely about baroque pitch, but um, yeah. there and then once you get to that, you can start getting more and more specific. But you can think in terms roughly of a sort of a semitone difference. Wow. Hmm. So yeah, it's, it's something to be aware of. If you turn up for a, a concert for a, a baroque program, you, it might be worth finding out in advance what what pitch everyone's planning to perform at, because you might practice it in the wrong pitch. Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, that sounds like a nightmare. I think that might be a problem with some of my earlier gigs, that maybe the, the rest of the jazz band would, 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 would tune to a Baroque pitch and I was a full <laughs> semitone out. Um, that not, would explain no fault, it, Chris. Through no fault of my own. <laughs> they were playing those Baroque clarinets, weren't they? they yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. There's nothing worse than a Baroque jazz quintet. Yeah, and a, yeah. The Renaissance saxophones are a nightmare. <laughs> oh, I love it. It does make you think, though, that when, when things are invented, so like saxophones, right, they're a product of the 20th century and they're designed to be easy to blow and a completely different embouchure from the clarinet and you just sort of, sort of almost like a sucking thing, you put your mouth around the thing and whoo, blow and hopefully something will happen. Thank you for that saxophone the, lesson. It sounds so easy. The, they, exactly. It's just a surprise that I don't have more pupils. Um... <laughs> <laughs> that's it there, that's my saxophone 101 yeah. <laughs> enter me for my grade eight next week please yeah no problem um no <laughs> got me off my thoughts anyway point being 20th century instruments so they were inventing different types of saxophones and the fact that we ended up with the with the ones that we sort of stick with today uh the soprano the alto the tenor and the baritone there were lots of other ones sort of in between and people were playing different shapes and different lengths and different keys and all sorts of things. And I guess the sort of it comes out in the mix that, yeah, the type of music we want to play, these ones seem to, to sort of suit us best. But I guess with pianos and harpsichords and the evolution of instrumentation over the years, that things could have gone a very different route and tonally we could be in a completely different space. I wonder if there's a sort of nature's natural way has driven us towards where we're at because that's the way it should be not because we're so clever well, you know we're just tuning into something that makes makes more sense to our ears 
So sort of Darwinian natural yes, selection. Of exactly. Survival of the fittest clarinet. Well, Correct. That's a very good point. New discussion. Yeah. Is it a Darwinian evolution? It sort of is, actually, isn't it? Because you see it when an instrument gets going for a start. When the piano was invented, it took quite a while for it to catch on. Because right. partly because there was no music for it. But nobody was going to write any music for it because it wasn't a very good instrument. So it's ah. a bit chicken and egg. And so you sort of need somebody, quite often an individual, to stick with something and you know really champion it and and become all nerdy about it to to make something happen. And actually thinking about the clarinet, you know, and the because um, you mentioned Mozart's clarinet concerto, concerto. which yes. was actually for the Bassett clarinet, wasn't it? And so that being played on a modern clarinet is already not what was intended. But then the original score's been lost, hasn't it? So and that yeah. instrument doesn't exist really except as a museum piece properly now so you know so that's true but then similar things with i'm just thinking about the trumpet and how haydn's trumpet concerto came to happen because yeah i've forgotten the name of the the, the fellow that created this crazy trumpet that was suddenly chromatic so because he'd invented this machine this yeah. instrument that was chromatic he was able to persuade haydn to write something actually his particular trumpet died a death because it wasn't a terribly good tone but it by getting somebody, I suppose, as good as Haydn to write something, it then encouraged others to be able to write stuff and a better instrument came along. And so his died out. You see, historically, I'd have been that guy. I'd have definitely invented something, gone to the best person I could find and say, look, this is going to change the world. And he go, yeah, right, sounds rubbish. But now you've said it, so it's quite interesting. I'll do this, but it's not going to be you, I'm afraid. Mm. Someone, someone lay down the line will, will make this sound good. Mm. But uh, thanks for the challenge. I'm just thinking that there's a there's a nice little loop up here with things we're talking about. Going back to Bach now, to J.S. Bach, mm. and you do say a good Bach, Bach. <laughs> <laughs> now you're saying I'm pretentious, so I'm. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm you, a you, I mean, I say I say Louis Armstrong, and I know that will probably piss off most people who go when he's called Louis. But what can you do? Um, yeah, so J.S. Bach um, <laughs> was one of the greatest improvisers of all time. Absolutely yeah. no question. And that was a huge thing of, of, of what he was known for and famed for in his lifetime. And you get his fifth Brandenburg concerto, and there's an amazing cadenza in there for the harpsichord, which must mm -hmm. have been for him to play himself, but also to show off the amazing harpsichord he'd got. So it's sort of a bit of everything hmm. in there. And then it's written down, of course. So it's now played. So that's the thing as well, though, isn't it? Because it comes back to that question again about the virtuoso. Because I was thinking, when you're talking about the great improvisers, obviously you could then put Bach together with Mozart, I reckon was probably pretty good at, at improvising. But chuck them down with uh, Charlie Parker and, I don't know, McCoy Tyner or something, to so someone on the saxophone and piano, and, and see how they all got on together. It would be, would be an interesting thing. But ultimately, Charlie Parker and McCoy Tyner are virtuoso performers. I mean, they're, they're outstanding musicians on those instruments. Um, aside of their musicality and ability to lead and to innovate and, and do new things, but I'd never really thought about Bach, number one, being being an improviser and then building, obviously it's so blooming musical and brilliant, writing all those wonderful, wonderful pieces, hundreds of thousands of them, right? But ultimately, yeah, it comes from a sort of musical doodle or a musical brain and seeing what's happened. But it must be gutting, I guess, if you're him and it's written down faithfully to say, well, that wasn't the point. That was my bit. That was my bit to just sort of freestyle. I can't believe you all wrote it down, you losers. <laughs> 
Um, well, some of it he wrote down himself, of course. Well, that's just showing off. It was such a good improvisation that I've now saved it for everyone. Yeah. Forever. Well, I mean, no, good for him. You know, but then also, Beethoven is is a big figure as well, an amazing improviser, and again famous for it. With him, there's the complication, of course, of of his devastating hearing loss. Yeah. So as his career progressed, his performance side of his career became less and less sustainable. Hmm. And so by the time you get to his final piano concerto number five, the emperor, the cadenza is written down and he actually puts a footnote, you know, and sort of in a very Beethoven way says, you know, thou shalt not improvise a cadenza. You, you must play this one. Isn't that interesting? Whereas up until that point, you know, he would have played his own. But he wrote yeah, cadenzas as well for people like Mozart's concertos. Uh, and they sometimes get used by other people now. That is interesting. Really interesting. You know, when we were joking, or when I was joking a little while ago, about, um, you know, writing stuff down, and that's probably what you should or shouldn't do, you know, if you've improvised something. There is a sort of question to say some stuff shouldn't be recorded and some stuff shouldn't be written down because that was never the purpose. The purpose was of the moment and and that's your memory of it and on it will go. And I guess there's a one route you can go off there and that's how tunes get passed on or you know and things develop and change a bit like you know sort of whispers to sort of say and you hear something different but the message eventually gets passed on and it's embellished and and it's richer for it I don't think anything I've ever played certainly live should be written down and I would question whether actually I'd ever want it recorded because it was of that time and it would always be out of context and that is the control freak in me going it was of then as soon as you've recorded it, irrelevant of commercial gain or whether someone else might listen to it, even me and posterity, it never can, unless I can recreate the circumstances of, of the acoustic in that room, of the way people were looking at you, of how you were feeling, then actually the truth, the truth of the music of that moment will, will, will be impossible to gain. So it should just be of that moment and we should only ever listen to live music. The end. <laughs> so I think I, I get that. I, I get what you're saying. And actually you've You've reminded me then of of a a very regular experience in my life for a while when I sang for many, many years every single week with um, a church choir. Yeah. And one of the... Which was that? The Lord Mayor's Chapel? The Lord Mayor's Chapel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And one of the roles of the organist is to improvise and fill in the gaps, as it were. So they, if there's some sort of procession or movement happening, they, they might just improvise along while that's happening. Or if you run out of verses in the hymn but actually the you know the clergy haven't really reached the right place in the church then they'll carry on that sort of thing yeah, and yeah. they extemporize but also you know quite often reharmonizing the final verse of a hymn and that sort of thing it's just it's sort of all the way through the 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 service yeah i used to have direct eyeline with john who was the director of music and um so was he the organist or was yes. he conducting right so, he, so he's playing he both organ. director of music and organist yeah. and so many times he and I would lock eyes in the middle of of a verse of a hymn when the choir is singing unison, so he's free to do what he wants. And I could see it in his eyes about two bars before he did it. He's about to do something outrageous. And he did it just to make me laugh. And of course, the more I laughed, the more outrageous he would get. But I bet if you recorded it and listened back to it, that's not a recording you'd want for posterity because it was of its moment and you hear stories of of 
I don't know, a cathedral organist suddenly putting postman Pat into the voluntary or something, or Star Wars on May the 4th. And that's, you know, it just, it's a game, isn't it? So, yeah, there's that element of playfulness. Yeah, and it's that playfulness, it's that innocence, it's that point of discovery that makes all of our eyes light up and sparkle. It's that that's more overt and obvious in the music that I play. But actually, it, it's, it's, it's there in all of us. It's the joy of it. It's connecting just maybe with one or two people. It might be making, trying to make the whole audience smile or chuckle or cry or, you know, dig deeper. But that's the, that, that's the opportunity there, isn't it? And I think that's when there is freedom. Yes. And I know you could take a piece of music that's written verbatim, but you can still mess around with the speed of it. Mm. And if I just think like to the last night, the proms and stuff, they often do that type of stuff, don't they? Where you've got a very, very able orchestra, but they'll slow something right down or speed it up. It's the classic one, isn't it? Um, until it's so so fast, you don't think they'll be able to play. But of course, it's making everyone in the audience laugh and smile and, and all get carried away and excited. Yeah, and I've definitely sung things in a concert massively slower than I would ever have expected to do just because that's where the audience was and we were in a moment of complete immersion in yeah. something. Yeah. And that's interesting. And I've sung stuff flatter than everybody else <laughs> in the in the choir. This Almost... is your Baroque choir again, is it? <laughs> exactly. I clearly have a big problem with pitch. So listen, Lottie, I <laughs> Shall we conclude our, our nattering and our chattering? Um, it's been absolutely fantastic to uh, to talk. I just love chatting with you. It's, it's uh, It makes me very happy indeed. Um, and I hope you've enjoyed it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, thanks for having me. I'm not sure if we've reached any uh, conclusions apart from that jazz musicians are very in the moment and, and on the edge of, of sort of risk-taking and excitement. Well, you say that. I thought I was going to reverse it. I'd say that, that classical musicians are taking the greatest risks that that there are possible and jazz musicians are hiding behind the chance that perhaps no one quite understands what should be happening anyway so but either way mm. we shall we shall agree by disagreeing but in joyful harmony maybe we're just as i said at the beginning we're just in awe of each other's way of doing things <laughs> exactly as always don't forget to keep your ears fresh and always look to connect with something new so it's goodbye lovely listener it's goodbye lovely lottie goodbye and it's goodbye from me take care